Welcome to the Truth CSGO podcast, episode 91. Today is an interview with Thorin about Flashpoint season one. I'm talking the road to Rio, recent roster changes, and human nature with a sprinkling of Christopher Hitchens. Hey guys, this is Electro. Hey guys, I'm Guardian. This is Daps. This is Nico. This is Nifty. This is Chris J. This is Fair. Code Zero. Flusher. Oh, this is Kerrigan. Are you listening to the truth? The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. CSGO podcast. The truth. CSGO podcast. The truth. CSGO podcast. Are we rushing in? Or are we going sneaky beaky like? There's a lot of interesting news backed up. Roster changes galore. Yampy. Astralis, a lot of Road to Rio stuff going on, a bit of controversy around gambling phase, lots of things to pick apart, a few COVID musings, but first off, let's start with this interview with Thorin. So I was contacted by Flashpoint to see if I wanted to talk to Monte Cristo and Thorin, and with 99% of my requests for interviews going unanswered, I have to admit I was pretty stoked. Now, Thorin actually has in the past been quite critical of journalists who don't use their real names because they aren't staking anything of importance on the veracity of their reporting, and I agree with that. I've never thought this was an issue with my podcast because all my news is clearly secondhand and my point of view is from a casual player and not an insider. I'm not investigative. Uh, no one sends me leaks. I'm purely speculative, which is part of the irony of this podcast name. And that's why I've been quite clear that I don't consider myself a journalist or this podcast a journalistic one. But as you'll hear in this interview, I do run into a problem that perhaps highlights I may be having a bet both ways. During our talk about Flashpoint, I asked Thorin whether he's heard of a community opinion that he and the other talent were bashing the teams involved in the league and how he felt about this. He asked me for evidence of this assertion that they were bashing the teams, which was when the narrator in my head said, it was at this moment the truth realized he was not in a casual chat with a friend, but a professional interview. You see, judging by the amount of Flashpoint articles on various websites such as win.gg peppered with Thorin soundbites post-league, this interview is part of Thorin's post-season job to spread the word about the success of Flashpoint, which is in stark contrast to me, um, whose whole podcast is really just as much a hobby as is playing the game itself. But in my mind, Thorin knew how much I was pulling for Flashpoint to succeed, and he wouldn't take it as a personal attack and instead have a thoughtful muse with me about why this situation might have happened. And perhaps he might have understood that had he actually listened to the last four episodes of my podcast, um, (laughs) which I didn't expect him to, of course not. Um, I was not the personality here. He was. I did not have the juicy information on how Flashpoint went. He did. And if I were to have a Twitter bio that reflected his old one, it would have read the least important opinion in esports. And so the onus was on me to be prepared. And so I watched all the Flashpoint Q&As. I read the other post-league interviews. I scrolled through Thorin's tweets, but I didn't prepare for my opinion to be questioned the way I was ready to question his. So maybe I am a fucking journalist. Maybe I do need to reveal who I am. But then on the other hand, I'm not overly interested in doing heavily researched exposés on entities in the scene and confronting them with hard truths. That's for people like DK or Richard Lewis who really, really care and are really good about calling people on their bullshit. I tried that once before in the laziest way possible uh, when Icon bought Chiefs. I tweeted out that it smacked of shitty Sydney real estate deals and the CEO of Icon took offence. And I have to admit, what did I have to back it up? Not my convictions, that's for sure. This is a podcast based on the value of uncertainty. 
On the other hand, if the only option is to turn this podcast into a PR vehicle for any tournament or team that wishes to tell me how good everything is or use it as a vehicle to tell the uh, listeners how good uh, everything they've been doing recently is, which is, to be fair, not what Thorin was doing, but you get my drift, um, I would rather tap out. I prefer that this podcast be about life and chats and casual CSGO. And in that sense, I would have far preferred to chat Christopher Hitchens with Thorin, but my attempts at personal conversation were not met with open arms, which... (laughs) Being anonymous, uh, I totally respect. So maybe it's time to come clean. Who knows? Anyway, without further rubbing of my own dadge, here is Duncan Thorin Shields. Thanks for coming on the podcast. First up, congratulations on Flashpoint Season 1. We know you didn't get to do everything you wanted, but I thought you started off quite well with the live vetoes on the very start of the broadcast. And I want to ask you about that process uh, it was cl- plain to see you, you were making the most of the big personalities you had in some of the teams like Smulia, Nifty and so on, which I thought was great. But I'm curious as to how much consulting you had with the players before that process. Do you mean more like star building then in terms of the storytelling aspect? Yeah. Were you upfront with the players about how you were going to use them and what you'd planned for them? I mean, I personally wasn't. like It's not like I'm, I'm the guy who has to go and ask them permission or anything. So I personally don't exactly know what was said to the players. But I will say... From even before we had the teams for Flashpoint 1, when we were even pitching to the Astralises, the fanatics of the world, to come be in Flashpoint, that's the first thing we basically told them. We didn't come straight in with like, you know, it's a million dollars and it's all about getting the revenue for your teams and stuff like that was the pitch to the teams, obviously. And obviously that was a later element of the pitch. But the first thing we tried to hit them with was all about the tone and the atmosphere and basically sell them on the vision that you're trying to create, that you're going to create when everything's in place. So we definitely, that was basically the first thing we hit people with because that's essentially how I got this job. Like, I mean, without recapping the whole thing, basically I was initially only um, contracted to just be a consultant. My job was just go to one meeting in LA, listen to their thoughts. In fact, the joke is I was supposed to listen to them tell me how their league was going to be and then just sort of give them my thoughts. But then... Basically, me and Monte Cristo, I mean, we hate the way things are done right now. I think it's garbage. It's so inefficient. It's just so like, there's so many conceits and unchecked assumptions within the field that don't need to be there. And I've literally tried to, tried to tell people for like 10 years, can we change this? Can we not do it like that? And every response is garbage because if, if people don't know the structure of the industry, all the people with creative talent are on camera. All the people behind the camera who hire you, set up the features, create the features. Unfortunately, the the most polite way to describe those people is they're like office workers. You know, they're a guy who has this job and he does this. And, you know, he's not the best in the world. Are you good? Are you always good enough for the pay that he gets? And every now and then you'll get like um, an executive producer or someone like that or a director who maybe does have some vision and some creative bent. But even then, they tend to have their hands sort of tied by the guy above them in the hierarchy who is a pencil pusher and a middle manager and a guy who has a budget. He's working to that and... Well, he doesn't see the vision of doing a big content piece because it's going to cost money. And can't we just stick with what we already have? So in that sense, like the key thing for me is the whole reason I'm involved with Flashpoint is that just like I'm saying I did with the players and the others, that's what I did basically with the people behind Flashpoint. I hit them with the vision of what, what it could be and what it should be and what we could change and things that have never been done before. But yet, but if the, if people are receptive, have million good reasons to try mm, so we know you were on camera what else did your role then balloon into yeah well that was the thing initially i was just a consultant then afterwards 
it was already implied within that meeting as well. Like, you know, obviously we would use you and Munch Crystal and then whatever other talent. But the idea was, like, like every other event I've done, I would just be a guy on camera saying my stuff. And then when they cut to commercial, that's the end of my segment. Yeah. That part, in terms of what I do for Flashpoint, is I would say only like half of my job. Now, it's certainly a big half, if that makes sense, because obviously by the end we had to do a lot of matches and, and uh, we had more of a limited talent crew than we probably would have liked to have had if that had been a lockdown. But the other half of my job, basically, is creative director. And so that the purview of that can be enormous. I would say the main area that the creative element comes in has been setting the tone, coming up with feature concepts, even being able to negotiate, I would say, like atmosphere elements, like we will be talking shit. And you know what? We will be swearing. And about five minutes into us saying, fuck shit, idiot, people will realize the world didn't end. We're all adults. And this isn't the Disney Channel. Unfortunately, especially because, as you alluded to, we didn't get to do a lot of, quite frankly, most of the content and shoulder things that we were going to do. You won't get to see yet what my influence is behind the scenes, but that's something where if Flashpoint 2 is what I imagine it will be, you'll really see at that point in time, like, this is basically my full-time job, doing Flashpoint. Right. I'd like to come back to the idea of the narratives in a second, but you did just touch on something I'm curious about, which is the demographics and... In your little Q&A with uh, Adam Adamu, he said that one of the things was really making sure that you're addressing a, you know, a, a gap in the market that's adult-oriented. And I'm curious if you have any insight now having a league kind of in your hands, what the demographics were in terms of who was watching it and who was engaged. Oh, I don't know that personally. Like that, that's, I will say that's one area where I'm actually kind of a bit of a mutant in that regard. Like, I never look at stats or demographics in general anyway. I mean, it's funny because it's consistent in as much as that's always been my position actually as an analyst. is like I'm more interested in the eye test and my own model, essentially my own philosophy that I worked from first principles up from the ground. I'm not somebody who just looks at the stats and goes, hmm, this guy has a 1.17. He must have been the best in the server. The other had 1.414. Like, so in the same sense, like even for my YouTube channel, I don't particularly look at the demographics, man. I don't really look at what country he watches. I don't look at what age group watches. I just make my stuff to my standard, how I want it to be. And if I'm rubbish, you'll never hear from me again, though. I won't be on another podcast. So I'll tell you straight up. It's the same concept with Flashpoint for me. I'll leave leave it to the business guys and the boffins to worry about who who exactly the target viewer of Flashpoint is or who is currently tuning in. My perception would be, that I think we are more in line with the tone and atmosphere of what Counter-Strike fans, players want, even pro players. I can't say that for certain, because quite frankly, no one's ever really done this approach. So I would say if it isn't already hitting somewhere close to that, I think that's where we will be in the coming editions of the tournament. Yeah, well, as the as the audience grows as well and ages, I'm, I'm 36 and I've been playing for 20 years, your tone, I think, is definitely future proof it just makes sense when you hear it doesn't it it's not it's not even a totally. hard sell that's why i joked you know like five minutes in you realize like wait a minute why couldn't we have just had this the whole time like <laughs> what we were just so because the joke is like like your question there that's essentially what all the people who did the past leagues did do they sat down and thought hmm, who would the uh, target audience be and then what they did because they're all greedy idiots who don't know anything about business is pick the most imaginary lucrative person who doesn't care about couch or esports like we would want it to be a 17-year-old to 15-year-old male who's playing Fortnite and he's very interested in, like, <laughs> buying you know, products and he has to order Twitch buttons. It's like, listen, yeah. mate, it's all well and good wanting that to be the case, but I don't even know that that's the reality. Like, my joke I always say is, it sounds like what we're doing is really revolutionary, 
until you remember that the whole reason that the ownership group was on board with our idea is the other model doesn't make you money. It makes you lose money. It's about the idea that you're targeting a viewer base that you don't really leverage right now. Like, like, like you just said there, I feel the same and I have for a long, long time, not least because even when I was 18, I wasn't like a friendly Disney Channel 18 year old, was I? I was an 18 year old that was pretty hardcore in the quake or whatever. So yeah. the idea that you have all this stuff like, a family show, guys. No swearing here. And then people are like, well, ooh, ooh, don't know if we like him talking trash on his old thing. Like, to me, that was always like, can I just get out of this? Well, the fact that it's a game where you actually, like, you literally shoot people and defuse bombs and blow up as terrorists that you can't <laughs> swear on a broadcast. Yeah, I, mean, I will say one, one consideration I, I can maybe forgive them a little bit for is if you thought that the promised land to make money was being on terrestrial and cable television, then yeah, you actually aren't going to be able to swear. But that's also why I, I, I'm going to keep going back to that concept of unchecked assumptions. I, I, I'm not making this up or trying to like ride the trend now. I could show you comments I made back in like the early 2000s where I always used to say, why would we want to be on television? Like The whole point is, think about it logically, guys. We like to watch this thing Television exists and has all the sports and entertainment you could want. Why aren't we watching television if television is the place to go? Whereas if you realize you're on the internet, there is no FCC, we're all adults, and it's actually a game for adults, even in terms of the tone, like you say, it actually starts to look like we're not even geniuses. It's like, why didn't everyone try this years ago? Can we just uh, circle back to the narrative thing for a sec? Because I was curious about the the way you were planning to form player narratives. I've always thought it was a shame how some of the players were underused. And one of the things that was bandied about was that you had a WWE writer who's coming in. I don't know why that person is anonymous. Um, is that a is that a, a decision you guys consciously made, or just no, you don't no. Think anyone cares? I mean, I mean, I think it's just because first of all. As far as I know, I don't think he ever actually joined the crew. Or if he did, he only did some minor stuff behind the scenes because one day into the tournament, the coronavirus thing meant that everything was locked down and you had to all work remotely. So I actually don't know if it was just that he never like got to be integrated into the project or if he, like I say, he was just giving minor details behind the scenes. But put it this way, I had no interaction with this person beyond initially meeting him when he was going to be hired and having like trying to get him up to speed on what Counter-Strike's like and, you know, how actually trying to give him similarities between things like WWE and UFC and how they tell the stories. So I, as far as I know, the main reason they haven't said his name is like, I don't actually know if officially he's involved in the project. So maybe they haven't just announced it in that sense. And then secondly, it's not sexy. Like, it's not like Vince Russo or whatever when they say WWE. <laughs> it's like, it's nobody you've ever heard of, mate. Like, I've never heard of this guy. Right. I mean, I'll admit I'm not like a super fan of wrestling anymore, but it's not some legendary guy in that sense. In fact, there's one area in esports that I'm kind of sick of the bullshit. Anytime you hear, oh, oh my God, did you know ESL has signed a top executive from the NFL? Can't have been one of the good ones then, can it? Think it through. Why would he be joining a fucking video game company? So in the same sense, we obviously didn't get the best WWE writer. We just got someone with experience in that field who hopefully can work with us to integrate some concepts maybe we don't know about yet but like i say i don't think he really did anything yet i guess i'm i'm, I'm wondering if there's going to be a a sort of a writer's room set up before the next flashpoint season where you go all right these are the teams we've got these are the personalities we want to use what are the potential storylines here where you actually kind of work out things you can stage things you can film before time and then based on how the games go, slot in other, you know, footage. Is that kind of thing going to go on? That is basically the premise that did happen and was going to. It's just that 
because of the whole online situation, it tended to just be a Slack group or an email chain where you suggest, you know, and quite frankly, since we're working with a, a fairly small company to start out with, and we're going to add talent as they go, to including behind the camera talent, it means that a lot of it's coming from me. So I don't really need like five other people. I just ask myself who's good in Havu and who would I be interested in seeing and who could be developing a star in Cloud9 that isn't, you know, I do it myself largely. And hopefully in the future, that's where the WWE writer. And then I would also say producer and then the other on-camera talent. I They were mildly involved and sometimes it was their idea and I was mildly involved. I would hope in the future though that, yeah, it would be something along the lines of I'd come with my ideas, someone would come with their ideas, the WWE writer will have his ideas, we talk them through, we figure them all out. At the end, we all agree I was right, and then we do some of the other people's as well. Just cutting into the interview here, uh, I know Thorin's having a joke, and you probably shouldn't take him too seriously, but as someone who has participated in uh, several writers' rooms for sketch shows, reality shows, dramas, this is actually not too far off how most of them run. So, yeah, he's having a laugh, but uh, there's a grain of truth in there for sure. Anyway, back to the interview. Uh, Just on the FPX front, it was rumoured that Swole Patrol were going to be playing under FPX, but then Bad News Bears stepped in because apparently they couldn't make a deal. Was that true? It wasn't quite clear why Swole didn't get the opportunity in the end. As far as I know, and this is a mixture of things I heard and then things that were actually reported, it was something along the lines of they couldn't come to an ag- agreement in terms of what their compensation would be or what sort of deal like Swole Patrol wanted. And I get that, by the way, because on one level, yeah, it's great to play in the Flashpoint tournament, especially if you're not a team in EPL. And especially if you're in a scenario where, although to be fair, they are in EPL, but especially if you're in a scenario where you're not like one of the biggest teams in the world and you don't get that many chances to have a little bit of profile and win money. But with that said, you don't just want to play in someone else's slot unless they pay you proper money or something. I'm like, why shouldn't they pay you a salary or something? You're representing their name because that was one of the problems, right? Remember, because we're Flashpoint and we don't pull punches, we did refer to them as Bad News Bears many times. Mm. But technically, that was also FPX in that second phase, mate. If that was ESL, that would just be called FPX 24-7. And we'd all pretend in our brains we didn't think that there was a totally different Danish lineup there, you know, two weeks before. So i understand why you wouldn't necessarily want to build someone else's brand up with your player and then not be part of whatever goes beyond that anyway and certainly not be part of the league in Flashpoint 2. So I think it's entirely reasonable on the side of Swore Patrol. This isn't something that was up to Flashpoint, by the way. It's obviously up to FPX, what they choose to do with their business dealings. And so when Swore Patrol didn't want to do it, Bad News Bears did. Cutting into the interview again, it's interesting to wonder what would have happened had Swole played under the FPX banner and potentially done well here because since this conversation, three of the Swole members have retired from Counter-Strike and moved over to Valorant. Uh, I think it's Food, Zelsus, and Freakazoid. So I've heard you guys say that FPX are probably going to be back. Do you... uh I know you can't say who they're going to pick up, but who, in your opinion, should they pick up? Or who would you most like to see playing in Season 2? I mean, as far as I know, they, it's, there's not even any debate. It's, on, it's certain they'll be back. Now, the fact that they don't have a lineup yet means I can't say it 100% because, like, yeah, if you don't have the team yet, it's kind of hard to 100% trust that'll be the case. Plus, things didn't go great the first time, so we'll <laughs> see how that goes. Obviously, they've never been in CS before. That's actually one of the issues I think that they might have is... They're coming in from an alien world to us. Like, China isn't really huge in CS. And if it is, it's certainly not huge in CS in terms of buying European or North American talent. It's about making an Asian team primarily with Chinese people, surprisingly. So I think their main issue is they're like a lot of newer people to the space. 
they're going to come in and I imagine they'll look at the world rankings and they'll ask for a bit of advice from some people, people at Flashpoint who may contribute advice, and they'll go and target, in theory, the best roster they can buy. Or the other alternative is obviously make a roster from separate parts. I would suggest they just buy a roster, though, because I actually think when you make a team from five players who've never played together, the risk is enormous compared to getting a core and maybe adding a piece or removing a piece. You know, like, at least there's a known quantity element there. So if I had to guess, I would say something like, if it goes great, look at the top five world rankings right now, they'll have one of those teams. And by the way, anyone who's listening now going, well, no, they won't, because Narvi would never sell it. You don't know what you're talking about. They'll, if it goes really well, they'll have one of those teams. If it goes not as well, they'll have a team that I think is fifth to tenth. And quite frankly, if they don't have a top ten team, I mean, I've never pulled any punches on this project the whole time. Then yeah, it'll be an underwhelming team, or it'll just be like heroic esque again, which is not my choice. I would rather you had a top team. Obviously, I want the best teams. Well, I know you don't pull any punches, and that is a nice segue into what I was going to bring up next, which is. One of the things that uh, actually turned myself off and some of the viewers on my podcast were some of the casters and the talent bashing the teams that were playing in the actual uh, tournament. Um, and even Semler complained at some point why why the analysts were shitting on the teams. Were you aware of this criticism or this sentiment from the community at all? Oh, I've never heard that, actually. Uh, it, was, um, it was quite... <laughs> It felt like it was a constant. And one of the things that I've felt like I didn't judge you guys for it. I understood. What do you it mean was... by bashing, by the way? You gotta get you can't just say that as though it's just like we all agree with that premise. What do you mean by we were bashing them? Oh, like was... can you give me an example of a team and how we might have characterized them? Yeah, so at one point, for instance, Monte Cristo compared mad lions to a pizza that you don't really want to eat. There was a few of those examples. Unfortunately, that wasn't a match I did, so I don't actually remember that example. Can you give another one? Is like another team that's coming to mind when you think of that? Uh, I do have some, and and I can definitely send you them afterwards if you'd like. But um, if you don't like, to, you don't want to answer that, that's fine. But uh, if you do, I will probably put those into the podcast. Examples, mate. So if you can just give me one, I can answer it. Uh, like for example, what you just said there, by the way, mm -hmm. I didn't ever hear that genuinely. But I also don't understand why that would turn you off the match. Like, first of all, I don't have any clue why Monte Cristo would say that because I told him before this Flashpoint 1 even began, by the way, mate, Mad Lions will be winning this. They are far and away the best team. And if they don't, it's just because they troll. So I, I, I'm actually amazed that he would even say that because to me, Mad Lions is actually the only team in Flashpoint 1 that you could even approach giving any kind of like praise as if they were a top 10 team which i think they actually probably now should be you know like i think they're the only team that you could have built as if this had been flashpoint one with all the best teams like in my in my world mad lions would have been involved anyway it's not like some of the lesser teams bad news bears etc that are obviously relative nobodies and just popped in so i'm actually myself confused why monte cristo made that example i would imagine it was probably just a joke so i also i'm also a bit confused by that why is that why would it turn you off that he compared them with a pizza? I mean, that's surely a metaphor, right? Well, it was a metaphor, but it was it was a... Do you think he was implying that there was shit? Like, he wasn't just joking, do you think? I mean, it even turned off Semler. In, in the clip on Twitch, it's Semler's genuinely like, why are you shitting on... He says, I don't know why our analysts have to shit on the teams. Oh, okay. I think it's time to cut in here and play the actual audio grab, courtesy of Listener Stack. In Flashpoint, for example, Mad Lions is an amazing team, just like Keto Pizza is amazing if you haven't eaten pizza in a while, right, Semler? <laughs> What? Just I had a cauliflower yes. piece. Why, why you gotta knock the mad lines? Right. Why you gotta knock the mad lines? I don't get the point. I'm sure you don't. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. 
Thank you. We I don't understand why. To... I don't understand why our analysts constantly have to shit on the teams all of a sudden to make jokes. You know, it's, it's kind of lame. But uh, you know, <laughs> that's their brand of humor. Sometimes uh, that's what flies, and sometimes it's uh, it's weird. Yeah. Uh, the problem with that is Settler himself has a pretty dry sense of humor sometimes. So I, that, the problem is when you say that, part of me hears that as though he's like. Oh, come on, Anders, why, why are yeah, they I know. shit on the teams, bro? Because like, totally. he does sound like Morty sometimes, some sort of fucked up American Morty, you know? So <laughs> that, that is sort of Semler's way of doing it. But I'd also just say, like, let's be real. I know everyone thinks Anders is like the greatest hypecaster ever. I don't know why people say that, because he was sat next to the greatest CSGO hypecaster ever. Like, Semler's whole style, basically, is, I always describe it as this. If you like Semler, what you like is his enthusiasm for the game. So, for example, I can already give you actually a good example, probably a better example than that, mate. We were shitting a lot on Dignitas, the Dig team. Yeah. Which obviously, listen, if that was ESL, they'd never shut the fuck up about those guys being major winners and the greatest team ever in 87 and 8. They'd even make that sound like that was relevant to the matches that we're going to play now. So, with that team, I'll tell you right now, I was, what in traditional context would have been quite disrespectful to them. Because I don't think they're a good enough team. I don't think actually Dig even should have made that team, quite frankly. And I don't enjoy watching them play. And that's the key thing to me, is I am an elitist. Like, that's not a diss to me. I actually take that as a badge of honor. Like, I only want to watch the greatest teams ever. That's why I've stuck around for 20 years, because I just focus on the greatest teams. So I can't, I'm not going to fake the funk and pretend like I'm getting super hyped that Havu's playing against Orglas. No, like, yeah, that's all right. And you know what? I can do some cool things around it because we're a flashpoint. And certainly, I'm going to give these guys a chance if they show me something. But I don't give anyone, like, I don't believe in hype, basically. Like, I, there's a great saying that, um, I don't know if you know who Chael Sonnen is. He's like an MMA fighter who's retired now. No, I never Are you heard familiar of him. He was a really good trash talker, basically, right? And basically, when people used to interview him about trash talking, they would often say to him, like, oh, you're one of the best hype men. You know, you really sell the fight. And he would always say... No, I don't actually. Like, I don't, I don't believe in hype because to me, hype is, it's implied in the world. You're basically lying. You're like pumping it up more than it is. His whole take was like, I'm a truth teller, you know, I just give it, I give you like the radical truth as it were. So that's kind of my approach with, with Flashpoint in general. And so if it turned you off, that's unfortunate. I would say personally, I would hope that the audience that's going to watch this, like me, would appreciate that you're being authentic, that you're not telling them that Havu versus Cloud9 is the, like the, what could be the major final. You realize that, yeah, these are teams that are struggling to get in the top 10. Cutting in here again to say that since recording this podcast, I've given it a lot more thought to this issue and I came to a conclusion after finding another clip of what I was talking about. So I'll play that first. So let's talk a little bit about Cloud9 then. If we must. <laughs> if you must. <laughs> uh, I, so I, Potter, I got to put you on the spot because you're the one who's positive about this team right now. And I know that Thorin um, does not believe in them, to put it mildly. Look. So in listening back to this, I realized that, of course, this is standard Thorin banter. This is what makes him good on a desk, and it does have the flavor Flashpoint was supposed to have. Uh, and he is being consistent with his elitism, and I would usually have no problem with that. In fact, I miss it when it's not a part of a broadcast. The problem is that this tournament didn't have any elite teams, at least none that were evident on day four, which is when this particular uh, clip was from. Um, so even though Flashpoint had the best desk talent, when it came to the teams, they were kind of the underdogs. So they're definitely the underdogs in terms of when you put them against uh, ESL. And this is why 
this sort of negativity turned me off. You see, two of Flashpoint's main assets were, one, they were giving smaller teams a chance to be profitable and compete for a real salary and prize pool, which is awesome. And two, they were supposed to provide edgier, more engaging and adult-oriented content around the games, which is also awesome. But unfortunately, these two factors were not always mutually compatible. Because when the games represent the vast majority of your content for a broadcast, they are the most important thing. I may tune into a new league out of curiosity about the format, but I'm only going to stick around if the games are good. And like everyone else, I'm already overwhelmed, so overwhelmed by all the choice at my fingertips with what to watch or what to play or what to read or whatever. So it makes me feel like a bit of an idiot tuning into a broadcast where the experts are laughing at the content that they're providing, that you're giving up your time to watch. Like if they don't even want to watch them and they're being paid to, why the fuck should I? And this is especially uncomfortable when, in good faith, I leave the broadcast on in the background even when I can't watch it because I so badly want these guys to do well. I so badly want ECS to have died for a good reason so we could actually have a great competitor for ESL so that ESL is forced to pull up its socks the way Valve is, I guess, filling the heat from Valorant. I know Flashpoint and Thorin didn't ask me to do that. That's just what I did, all right? I love CSGO. I love the scene. And look, I'm sure I was primed before the league began to be sensitive to this sort of thing because the, quite frankly, overshadowing amount of negativity surrounding uh, Thrawn's attacks on ESL that not only presaged the leagues, but also flared up during the tournament itself with the viewbotting whataboutism debacle, where at times it felt like ESL was Thrawn's Carol Baskin and we're all watching some CSGO version of Tiger King. But I have to say, all this is moot if the next season has a lot uh, better teams. And I, I should not forget what Thorin himself points out, which is that they had an incredible desk who were very good at explaining some of the uh, strengths and, of course, relative strengths of these teams and these matchups, Potter, uh, Maui Snake, Sean Guerra's in particular. So this is not even that big a deal, um, but I thought it was an interesting thing to explore. Back to Thorin. What do you wish you had done differently? In terms of like shoulder content and stuff? Yeah, in terms of the whole of the, the season or whatever you had control over, yeah. Well, the, the main problem is even just playing the matches out didn't really get to where it would have been in terms of how you would have experienced as a viewer. Because, I mean, if you remember, okay, I think it was only the first two days, maybe, that we had... Um, oh, no, sorry, it was the, was the first... I think it was only the first two days that we were on LAN. And yeah. that was when we, you know, spilled your shouting and we had the dig guys even got into it. And obviously people remember year from... Uh, whatever TV's on August, right? Um, they, everyone remembers these moments, right? Because they were on camera. That's already one of the areas that we were robbed of in Flashpoint, which is everyone remembers how fun that was. That was just day one. Hmm. Imagine if that had been like that the entire time. So we would have been able to give those players a platform where they could have gone crazy with that stuff. They could have done some really cool stuff. They could have made it more fun. They could have made it more tense if they'd wanted and had the bad blood element. So even that aspect of the tone couldn't entirely transfer once we went online because, I mean, we don't have player cams in that setting and they're not going to react the same way if they're in totally different houses anyway. Beyond that, in terms of shoulder content, that's probably the biggest tragedy of Flashpoint 1 is, listen, in terms of how um, resources came my way, I don't know that I would have gotten to do everything I want to do. I have a lot of ideas. But put it this way, I would estimate that what we actually did in terms of like player profiles and side content and jokey stuff and skits, I would estimate we did about 10% of what we would have done. 
So the story building and the narrative elements and introducing to some of these players would have been way more pervasive. It would have been in almost every single segment. Similarly, if we could have all been there in person every day, we'd have all had the same resources as we would if it had all been offline. And there was no coronavirus situation. The analysts would have been able to go even more in depth. Like you saw the occasional Skybox video or you got or Potter or Mousenick would pull up around. My plan was for that to be almost every match. Now, I will add it. Part of why it also probably isn't the end of the world that it didn't work out is that might actually have run the risk of being a slightly too boring for the more casual fan if he really doesn't care about Havoc versus Cloud9 or Havoc versus FPX, you know. Like in that scenario, maybe he doesn't want to watch 10 minutes of like in-depth strap breakdown. The problem with that is I obviously came up with that concept and that premise for how we would set it up, thinking it would be like Astralis versus Fnatic where you would want to go in for half an hour and break every single route down, key flashes and a player's rotations and stuff. So I think in the end... We sort of got away with it, but I definitely want to do a lot more than we did now. That's one of the things people probably don't appreciate. The reason why, like I I talked about when we pitched the premise to the owners, I basically came in and told them, all you're doing is rubbish. If you think that's good, you don't know what you're talking about. And yeah, I really do know better than everyone. So listen to me. And the reason why I said that is, I didn't come up with this stuff five minutes ago. I've been begging and beseeching and pleading and trying to trying to figure out ways to manipulate the ESLs and the dream hacks into doing this types of content. Like people might not know this. I'm the one who was the first person who actually knew esports to write intros for when the teams come up to the stage. It started, I think DreamHack Fusion of Poker in 2015 where DreamHack did one. Then later on that was able to expand. I did the concept with the ESL where now it was a little two minute video about a team that they would play before a key match or before they got eliminated. The problem is to even get through to that point in time was like a watershed moment in esports that an on-camera person could do some of the off-camera stuff. And so the reason why that's so whack, though, is we should have always been doing loads more of that. That should have been a main part of the feature, as, by the way, ironically, it would do if it was on television. So I've always felt like that was really lacking in esports. On the flip side, what were you happiest with in terms of how it went? I mean, first and foremost, that the tournament actually finished. Again, if, you, <laughs> if you're in like day two or day three, and then someone tells you uh, there's a virus around the world and the entire world's been shut down and no one can ever meet it again, you, you start thinking maybe the tournament's going to get cancelled. Unsurprisingly, you know, wouldn't exactly be completely out of left field at that point in time. Yeah. So the fact that the tournament got finished, that already is a massive win. Like that, that feels like an enormous accomplishment taking into the line... The, the updated context, as it were. I'd also say, I thought in the end, um, we kind of like locked into something with how we analyze the teams, which is that since I had Maui Snake and I had Potter as my primary analysts for most of Flashpoint, they come from that world. Like they mm. are both people from the NAC and Potter knows all the European teams in Tier 2 because she does all the, the Dream Hack Opens. Yeah. And then Maui Snake was literally playing in like low level of invite and playing in like MDL level and stuff. And so he's like, I, I don't know if you heard him mention early on, he was going to be the coach of Bad News Bears. I think was the team. That, oh, maybe it was August. I, I think it was Bad News Bears. Hmm. And so in that scenario, like you couldn't have asked for better people in terms of knowing the teams, because let's be real. Like if me or Moses talk about Bad News Bears, for example, again, I'm not going to fake the fuck. I'm not going to go away and watch 800 demos and be like, I know this team in depth. Because I also think that's not authentic to the viewer. Like, I think it actually works better that you know I'm used to watching the top teams. So I'm like starting to learn this team with you guys at home. But then at the same time, you're getting some contrasting opinions from some of the people who know them better. And I'll even say, I also thought that was a fun dynamic because if you notice towards the end of the tournament, 
I got Maui Snake a few times in those prediction contests because, you know, he would he would have watched a team way more than me, like a cloud nine, and he'd be really feeling the potential and if floppy went off, this could happen. But I, I come from the world of what tier one CS is like. So I was like, listen, mate, that's a brilliant dream, maybe one day. But you know what? The MIBRs of the world, the, the Mad Lions of the world, they're going to beat these teams. They're going to use their experience and potential is a great thing, but you got to do it. So I think just in that sense, we got an interesting balance of analysis, bearing in mind we had a very unusual set of teams. I know you can't really say who might be sniffing around uh, from ESL in terms of jumping ship in the future, but this is, and this is a listener question. Let's say you get several of the teams from ESL for Flashpoint 2 who want to make some money. What does this mean for a viewer? Because I don't know how intentional it was that the uh, times were the, basically the leagues were playing at the same time but if I have half my favorite teams in one league and half in the other team doesn't that mean I start to lose out at some point at some point I'm just going to be split right uh, if you're the sort of fan who watches live yeah of course I mean in that scenario like you said if, if you if this is hypothetical if Na'Vi played in EPL and Astralis played in Flashpoint then yeah you can't watch both at the same time if they're both playing so yeah, that's certainly a consideration. I would say, personally, I like to watch a lot of VODs. It's actually the main way I consume Counter-Strike because I don't want my entire day to be at the whim of when some idiot in Germany decided to put a game at 9am CEST. So I, I personally watch VODs myself. So I would still go and watch the games anyway. I get that some people, though, can't handle spoilers and they don't want to know the result and they want to be there in the moment and experience it and have the... And I, that all that stuff where all the Zoomers are like, ah, oh, Twitch chat's just like being in a crowd in a stadium. It's like, I turn Twitch chat off, mate. I don't even read that shit. So, so maybe I'm out of touch in that regard. So I would say I'd agree with your premise. I think, yeah, it'll make people make a tough choice. And that's also good for the industry because as I've pointed out in the past, this industry cannot keep going the way it is. So you know what? If people have to make a choice between EPL and Flashpoint, isn't that better than what we had before? I'd imagine before most people watched EPL, the numbers say so, and then some people watched Flashpoint. So if anything, that's good for us. I think it's EPL you should probably be asking that question of. And then in terms of when you said, you know, I, I can't say, we can't say who's sniffing around and who might jump ship. This is a core thing I want to emphasize here because I feel like it gets missed a lot because I get it. We're all coming from a world literally only two months ago where the CS circuit is like this. The TO is just putting on a big LAN party and it lasts a week and he wants the best teams because it's only going to be for a week. Because this is a whole thing where the tournament lasts a month and then there's going to be two seasons a year and then there's going to be years and years of it. The premise of joining Flashpoint was never Flashpoint 1 is going to be the best tournament ever. That was never even the premise, even if we'd have gotten a lot of good teams. The premise is eventually it will be the best tournament and eventually it will have the best teams. And I'll even say eventually it will have all the best teams. And now the reason why I can say it will have all the best teams is because the mechanism wasn't that we have to get Fnatic to join, that we have to get Astralis to join. Obviously, that was the initial thing we tried to do because they've got so much experience in the space and they are the champions right now. So that was a way to make Flashpoint 1 really good. But the key mechanism here is Gen G has way more money than Fnatic does and way better and more sturdy financing. People, even that you might not think because their lineup is rubbish, like Envy. Envy has way better backing than Mouse Sports. One of the, a team that in the server would annihilate them. So here's the, here's the real point is I don't ever need Mouse Sports to join Flashpoint necessarily if Envy buys Mouse Sports lineup because Envy has the money and Mouse Sports in a position where they have to sell eventually. So I would also add in even though it's obviously under the most tragic of circumstances, I think actually that's where the coronavirus situation 
and specifically the knock-on economic effect it's had, might actually accelerate how quickly the talent is uh, sort of diluted, no, not diluted, how do we say it, uh, dispersed from one league to the other. It's not that the Fnatic team will necessarily join. Hey, if they do, cool, if they've got the money. But I'd rather, I, I, I don't care personally if the name in the server is Fnatic, as long as it's JW, Crimson, Flasher, and all the people we like to watch, you know. All right, is there anything else you want us to say to my listeners about Flashpoint Season 2? Yeah, I'll just say at the moment, there's a little bit of uncertainty because obviously no one knows quite frankly, what's going to happen before the major because the major got moved to November and obviously we had our space carved out around that sort of a time period. So a lot of things are still in flux. It's not actually the case that we can just go with the original plan. But if the original plan goes ahead, I think already I'm fairly confident there will be at least a couple more cores that are top 10 cores. Well, there was none at the moment. There will be a couple of top 10 cores in Flashpoint 2. So already we'll at least have like more tiers of talent and we can make some interesting matchups and we can showcase new talent but we can also get the established guys which I think would be awesome for the banter and all the fun side content but I'd also just say again this it's I don't need to hype it it's more just that we're, we're going to keep doing what we want to do in the way we like to do it and I personally think I'm going to go to town on these guys before Flashpoint 2 and you will see a lot of upgrades in a lot of key areas awesome all right. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Sorry, Matt. I appreciate it. Ah, cheers. All right, let's crack through this news. The Road to Rio continues this week, and so far we've seen a ridiculous amount of weird games online. We started off with Ends upsetting Fnatic Movie Star Riders, beating Mouseports and Fnatic just a couple of nights ago. Envy beat Liquid, Hard Legion beat Na'Vi. It's been nuts. We'll start with Europe. Astralis have tied top of the group with NIP, and FaZe and the other group have tied with G2. This uh, is, of course, still ongoing, so there's many more matches to be played. Godsent did surprisingly well. I'm doing surprisingly well in Group B, and Heretics have had a very nice run. Still lots of games to play here. In North America, we saw Gen.G and Fury in the grand final, and Gen.G managed to overcome them. Uh, Liquid and EG basically have fallen off a cliff and uh, didn't go very well. Envy have improved. Kalex and Mihu have been really performing, and these guys actually beat Liquid 2-0, as I mentioned before. The biggest news in NA was the conflict of interest. This was between um, Made in Brazil, MIBR, and one of the other teams competing, Yeah. Yeah was actually created by Zeus, who was the former coach of MIBR, now coach of Evil Geniuses, and it's owned by Dead, the manager and coach of MIBR, Fallen and Taco, members of MIBR, and also Cold Zero of phase these guys actually played yeah i think it was the first matchup and yeah lost all their matches here but you can imagine how awkward things might have been had they not so this really undermined the whole tournament for me basically now in the cis region spirit topped group a and virtus pro topped group b but only by rounds which doesn't seem like a great place to be considering you can win just as many games as another team but still be ranked beneath them which comes down to a change in valuation winning a certain number of rounds or games there's still matches to be played in the cis region asia was won by tiger they beat Tai Lu in a grand final. If you don't know who Tiger is, get with the Progs. That's the Mongol team with your boy Urkas, the ex-Greyhound Boyho. Uh, he was versing an old Chinese Tai Lu, uh, Tai Lu, who apparently have silky smooth comms now since they benched Freeman and Zeta. South America was won by Boom. I didn't watch any of those, so I can't really tell you too much. Oceania was won by Renegades. This was a showdown in the grand final between Renegades and Order. Uh, a couple of days ago, and it was looking like Order might actually pip the Gades, being up 12-3 after winning the first map. 
uh, and they were up 12 there on the second map, but it was not to be. The Gates came back and showed them who was boss. Let's move on to some miscellaneous news. I'm racing through this because there's so much, and let's face it, it's two weeks old, some of it. ESO 1 Cologne is going to be played online this year. IEM Melbourne has been postponed till next year. Pith has announced he's going to Valorant. Uh, he's been playing CSGO in nine years. You'd know him from NIP the most. And other Valorant players, uh, there's been quite a few defections this week. Auglis basically broke up post-Flashpoint, um, which was a surprise to me because they did much better than I thought they would. Um, but Sick is going to Valorant. Wardell is going to Valorant. Sub Rosa is going to Valorant. And the aforementioned Swole players are also going to Valorant. My grandmother is going to Valorant. I'm not going to Valorant. Ye put out an interesting twit longer about how hard it is in the Tier 2 scene to get paid or get support from an org, especially during COVID times and how any new orgs uh, looking to get into the scene are simply looking to buy out established teams. Uh, Thorin talked a bit about that actually, which is interesting. Now, Michael Ailey shot back uh, at, at uh, Yay with the fact that those guys on Godsent did it for a year before they got picked up by Pronax's org. And as a screenwriter, I've done it for almost 15 years, but everyone's different. Everyone has a different threshold, a different support system, a different sense of what's acceptable or not. You can bet some of these guys saw their peers moving and thought, what sort of chump am I to stay and keep grinding? in CS? Am I going to be left behind? Sometimes we're motivated by the fear of looking like an idiot. And the temptation of being a big fish in a small pond is strong too. Look at Ninja in the Pajamas. They've profited for seven years from being the first to grind global offensive. Whew. In other news, Hunden is coach of Heroic. Yumpy has signed to Ents and they've since looked a lot better. They've beaten teams like Fnatic. Um, of course, Yumpy can't play Road to Rio games, but he has participated in, I think, Blast Rising. We saw some wonderful highlights with him and Alu uh, Jewel Orping. We've also heard some of the players come out and say that he has a little fire underneath them and give them a lot more excitement for the game. And uh, when we've seen X7 actually in the server, it looks like it's lit a fire under him for sure, if that's possible to light a fire under such an icy, icy fin. Now, Australis are apparently going to sign a couple more players, according to DK, and they've started with Yugi. So this brings their lineup to a total of seven players, right? Now, this is my boy Yugs, aka Jacob Hansen, aka Hansen Ferdinand, aka Electric Yugaloo. DK Regan's Magisk has also been practicing as an IGL. Now, some speculate this might be the core breaking up, as Australis recently came out and said lots of the staff have taken pay cuts due to COVID, uh, and also because they weren't profitable last year. But it could also be that they're building an academy roster to compete in smaller tournaments, or, for example, a tournament like Flashpoint. If you are confident that your team, uh, that your system is star-making and not simply uh, due to the fact that your individuals are the stars inherently, then I guess why not get an academy, give them all the support of the main team and send them around to the dream hacks and loot bet things that are not as prestigious as the bigger tournaments and hoover up all that prize money next year when maybe everything is back to normal. Uh, but more likely, they're just doing what they said they were, which is creating a flexible roster that can rotate players in and out as they'd like so they can attend more tournaments. People don't get bought, burnt out. Um, and after all, uh, they, you know, the org can demand higher rates from sponsors the more visible the team is. Now, in some of the sweetest news to grace my wax and ears, six of the chodes responsible for the recent f- match, match fixing in the ESCA Mountain Dew League in uh, Victoria. That is Victoria, Australia. They've been charged. The Assistant Commissioner Neil Patterson told the Australian ABC the men from 19 to 27 won at least $30,000 betting on the fixed matches, and these guys could go to jail for 10 years. So if you're out there and you're thinking of doing it, and you know who you are, it's not worth it. That's $5,000 for 10 years of your life. Now, apparently FaZe's CSGO team was basically funded by CSGO Wild, a gambling site, back in the day. Something I didn't know was the word gerontocracy, which is defined as a state, society, or a group governed by old people. For instance, 
people like to joke Japan is a gerontocracy because of the aging population. Now, in personal news, I have a new computer, a mini ITX, so I've been playing a little CS again and have finally caught up to all the updates and the new maps and metas. And the thing that has surprised me is how bad my aim is. It's about a second behind everything, and I'm close to blaming it on my monitor, which is so old it's virtually CRT, but my game sense is also non-existent. And this could be down to the atrophy of quarantine, actually. Um, the lack of sleep, the lack of exercise, the lack of a LAN, the lack of a choix de vivre, the lack of a spree de corps with the human race, the general lack of a motivation, and the general questioning of the purpose of my life and all the decisions I've made up until this point. This is not uh, unique to me. My friends have voiced similar experiences, and my current thinking is that this is due mostly to the fact that we are generally used to an amount of certainty that we currently don't have. I feel like our subconscious is asking us what's the point of acting for the future if the future is completely unstable and uncertain. So sometimes the current situation feels like we're trying to look at our compasses, but the needle keeps swinging and can't actually find true north. Now, I spoke last week about the illumination of human nature that the pandemic and all society-wide rules have provided. And there is a millennia of evidence of both darkness and light in the depths of human beings. But I did read an interesting quote recently. And this is in the words of Philip Morofsky, the author of Never Let a Good Crisis Go to Waste. He says, These excesses would quickly be denounced by the political world. The political reaction will also be much worse than in 2008. He's talking about the pandemic here. Because this time there will be much more pronounced populist and nationalist tones. Certainly the left can tell great stories, say that the crisis brings us closer, teaches us to work together, etc. But this is not the case. People will just learn that they hate their neighbor. This is already happening in the United States and in Europe. The European Union did not help Italy when it was the easiest thing to do. What reaction will she have when the situation is further degraded? What do we believe? This is what I'm not quite sure, that there is good in the hearts of men. This is this is me talking now, truth. That there is evil, that it's 50-50, that it's all context-dependent. There's a new book called Humankind that highlights six Tongan boys who are stranded on a desert island in the middle of the Pacific for over a year and live together in harmony, which is in stark contrast to the tale of Lord of the Flies, commonly accepted as, uh, I guess, wisdom that points to the darkness in the heart of men's souls. I think it's time for us to hear from Christopher Hitchens. Um, it's not a thorough answer from him, but it's an elegant one, and it's apt considering he's already had a mention. Let me ask a question another way. This is my last question. Um, if God does not exist, why do all people have a fixed moral obligation to love and not murder? How do molecules in motion have any authority to tell you how to behave? When you do something wrong, whose standard are you breaking? Who are you displeasing? The carbon atom, the benzene molecule, who? This question has been asked, uh, the, Socrates answered it like this, when he was on trial for his life. Uh, accused of blasphemy, by the way. Um, he said that he had an inner daemon, was the way he put it. Not demon, a daemon, a spirit, uh, an inner critic, a conscience would be one way of putting it. And that he, he knew enough to know, even when he was making the best speech of his life, that if he was making a point that was somehow dishonest or... Uh, incomplete or shady, the daemon would tell him, yeah, that was clever, but you shouldn't have tried it. He knew. Any, any person of average moral equipment has the same knowledge, I hope you'll. If you don't, I'm very sorry for you. Um, Adam Smith called it the, the internal witness, who we all have to have a conversation with all the time. Um, it's been C.S. Lewis decided to call it conscience and to attribute it to the 
to the divine, but he didn't improve on what Adam Smith said in Theory of Moral Sentiments or what Socrates said when, on, when standing trial for his own for his own life. It's been sometimes colloquially defined as why do people behave well when nobody's looking? I don't believe there's anyone in this hall who doesn't know what I mean by that. Why, when it won't do you any good, will you decide, I could have kept that wallet I found on the back of the cab seat, but I'm not going to. I'm going to turn it in. I'm going to see if, find, find its real possessor. There are people to whom that, those thoughts do not occur, who are deaf to that idea, who only think of themselves, who wouldn't worry about the internal daemon or censor or, uh, or companion. And there are, of course, people who only get pleasure from being um, unpleasant to other people and inflicting cruelty on them. The first group we call the sociopathic, and the second group we call the psychopathic. My only, and they occur in nature. That was from his debate versus Frank Turek at VCU in Richmond. Now, DreamHack Master Spring is coming up for all you in the Southern Hemisphere. That's May 19th to June 14th, so it's actually autumn slash winter. Not that there are any teams from the Southern Hemo in there, but there are four groups with basically every big team in it, so you'll have more CS to watch. I was close to seeing more meaningless CS to watch, but I just caught myself before I leapt over that edge. But I will say a lot of people have opined that Corona is good for CS. Numbers have risen in game. Viewer numbers have risen, uh, and that's all cool. But, and it could be my own ever-expending ennui, the matches do seem increasingly meaningless. Without seeing the emotions of the winners as they stand up there and lift the trophy, we are definitely losing a lot of the connection to the competition, the sense of competition and energy. When Cothorin mentions he prefers to watch VODs than the live thing, I cannot imagine getting much joy out of doing that on a continual basis. The sense that you are part of something happening live is a vital experience in watching all competitive sports, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, by the time we actually do get a LAN, I'm wondering whether I'm going to be hungrier for it or I'm just going to be burnt the fuck out on CSGO. Time will tell, and I will tell you on this podcast. If you like this podcast, you can leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. You can contribute to the server costs at patreon.com slash thetruthcsgo. I'm working on a special episode about identity that is only for the patrons right now, and I promise I'll speak a bit slower on that one. Uh, you can reach out on Twitter at thetruthcsgo. There's a Discord address there, so you can tell me your opinions, and I can use them in the podcast to pretend I thought of them. Or you can send me an email to thetruth at thetruthcsgo.com. Thank you to Stack for the Twitch clip and Burko Bird for questions for Thorin on Discord. Until next time, enjoy the game. Mm-hmm.